On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the possibility of a boycott of the Beijing Olympics, but not really a boycott per se. That could happen, but over 200 human rights groups are now calling on the TV networks, the broadcast networks, to boycott the games and say, we won't show the games. Good idea? We'll talk about it. We're also going to talk about some new numbers from Nick Nanos, the pollster from Nanos, that seems to show some interesting movement in the last days of the campaign. And Don Robertson joins us to talk about minor hockey and other stuff. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. This is a story that has been, we heard rumblings about this some time ago, and it's been getting bigger. Now, of course, we're getting closer. So you would expect that there's going to be more on this one. But a coalition of over 200 groups from around the world uh, representing Tibetans, Uyghurs, Hong Kongers, uh, Chinese, Southern Mongolians, Taiwanese, and other groups are now calling not just for a boycott of the 2020 Beijing Olympics, or maybe not for a boycott at all. We'll clarify that in just a second. But more specifically, in an interesting spin here, calling for the broadcast networks that would cover the Olympics to say we're not going to go to Beijing and we're not going to give airtime to this event. It's an, I had never thought about this before. We've all we've heard calls for boycotts. This is an interesting twist. I want to bring in Leydon Taitong. She is a, a political activist. She is a Tibetan-Canadian. She's co-founder and director of the Tibet Action Institute, former executive director of Students for a Free Tibet. She joins us now. Uh, Leydon, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Hi there. How are you? I'm fantastic. I appreciate you doing this. It's a, it's a really interesting, and, and I'm sure for a lot of people, uh, a really passionate topic to be talking about. And before we get into the, the letter that, that sort of got us talking about this today, would it be a fair assumption that you're try, you would prefer that the games not go on at all in Beijing, let alone how we might get there? Your preference, what I guess, would be for no Olympics in Beijing? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the... Unfortunately, the International Olympic Committee went ahead and uh, uh, awarded the Games to Beijing again after the disaster of 2008. Um, so, yeah, we would prefer no games at all in China. All right. Now, I, I don't want to be patronizing here, and I am assuming mm-hmm. that many of the people who are listening are very aware of why you would say that. But for the few that aren't, as familiar of why there are people who are calling for a boycott, take a few seconds and explain why you would be wanting this to happen. Yeah, so the uh, human rights situation in China and in Chinese-controlled um, countries and territories, you know, Tibet, uh, East Turkestan or Xinjiang, uh, Hong Kong, uh, China itself, Southern Mongolia, the situation um, has deteriorated terribly since the last games in 2008, for example. Um, and we have actual a genocide uh, occurring in East Turkestan against the Uyghur people. You know, the Canadian, um, the House of Commons declared uh, the, the abuse against the Uyghur people over a million, perhaps up to two million Uyghur and Turkic-speaking Muslim people in internment camps facing forced sterilization, um, and uh, torture and systematic forced labor. You know, Canadian Parliament declared that a genocide, as well as the Dutch Parliament, the UK Parliament, even the US government, the State Department. So 
we have a, an actual case of genocide occurring uh, under the Chinese government. We have Tibetans inside Tibet since 2008. I mean, we have a, basically an information blackout, a total lockdown of Tibet. You don't hear about Tibet on the news these days because no one can get out. Very few people can get in. The international media, foreign observers, no one's allowed in. And Tibetans are facing the elimination of Tibetan culture and just a massive campaign of repression inside Tibet. And then, of course, the world has seen what's happened more recently in Hong Kong with the attack and undermining of democracy. And then in China itself, the situation, what little political space used to be there and what little sort of freedom civil society had to organize and to protect rights of the environment, that is virtually gone now. And that's all since 2008 that, that we've just seen this terrible backsliding uh, in China itself. And then we know the case of the two Michaels and how the Chinese government just is an authoritarian regime that unelected, unaccountable, is operating in more and more dangerous and belligerent ways in the world. What makes this interesting is it's not just a letter saying, hey, don't go to the Olympics. Um, that probably is not going to happen, not widely, I don't think. I don't know how many countries are going to stand up to China that way. The letter, though, and uh, um, Leighton, I, I find this really fascinating. You're actually calling for the broadcasters to stay home from this. And, you know, if you want to go and play your game, uh, that's fine, but you're not going to be seen by the rest of the world. Why go after the broadcasters? Well, I think the broadcasters have a special responsibility here, um, especially the public broadcasters like uh, CBC and others to really stand up for human rights, to do what is right in this time when genocide, for us, what we're saying is genocide has to be the red line. There has to be a place that the IOC and the Olympic Games don't go. And of course, the IOC is not listening. They're dug in. They're planning to push ahead with these games. And who has the biggest influence over them is uh, the broadcasters. And, you know, NBC, I think, is 40% of the International Olympic Committee's total income accounts for with their what they pay for broadcasting rights over seven billion dollars for six games uh six different olympic games i believe so we're talking about big money big influence and we can already see alignment and agreement amongst international political players that these games are should not go ahead as normal that there should at least be uh diplomatic boycotts um but what we're saying is that the broadcasters can do more and that the games this this is the Olympics are supposed to be a celebration um, of friendly, friendly relations between nations and of the athletes and their incredible achievements on, you know, in their sports. And, and to be a part of what for the Chinese government is going to be like a big propaganda show and a cover-up of, of the genocide, of their rights abuses, of their, you know, abuses in Tibet, Hong Kong and beyond, it just, it's unconscionable. And they are particularly vulnerable, I would say, because... The broadcasters are also, you know, these are the people we rely on for our news and to spotlight the very abuses they're going to be helping to cover up um, if they participate in these games and if they air these games. What's really interesting to this, and it's a, it's a really interesting way to go about this, and like I look at NBC, for example, and as you say, I mean, they've got so much money invested in this with shareholders and everything else. I'm not sure they're going to do that, but there are also these state-funded, CBC, BBC, others like that, these state-run broadcasters that they get put in a very different position because now they are i guess if they go they are representing the country and if they're there that means the country is supporting it puts them in a much more difficult position 
absolutely. And I think we see really an incredible shift in terms of public awareness and and um, concern over these issues, especially in Canada. I, you know, just the the understanding of the real threat that the Chinese government poses, not just to those people under its, you know, control, whether Chinese citizens or Tibetans or Hong Kongers, but to people in the free world, to Canadians, to, you know, the two Michaels who are guilty of absolutely nothing, but are, are, you know, sentenced to one for 11 years for, you know, trumped up charges and, and, we can see how, I guess, the Canadians and others can see how this is. This just can't be a games like any other. There has been some polling in Canada that's shown, I think, overwhelming uh, support for a boycott and and you know the Winter Olympics of of Beijing, um, and the Winter Olympics are something Canadians love. So for forty five percent, I think it was a CTV poll. 45% of Canadians to say they support a boycott, 19% to say they somewhat support a boycott. That's, to me, though, they're incredible numbers. And it says mm-hmm. a lot about how the public is feeling about Beijing 2020, you know, 2022 specifically. Because, because CBC, for example, we're in Canada, let's talk about the CBC. Because the mm-hmm. CBC is a state-run, state-funded broadcaster, if it was not to go, or if it was mm-hmm. to go, either way, is that to be interpreted as a political statement or is it just that they're there covering a games? Can, can you not read into it if they are there or not there? No, absolutely not. And I think that what everyone knows is that the games are political, most especially for an authoritarian government like the Chinese. Come on, China says these are not political. <laughs> and they're using these games as a political tool as they, you know, this is all about legitimacy. And the Chinese government, unlike an elected democratic government, doesn't have legitimacy. It's not elected. It's unaccountable. And so not only internally for a domestic audience, but externally for the international community, they need these kind of grand spectacles to sort of show that they are just like the rest of us, that they can essentially broadcasting the games is like broadcasting propaganda because the Chinese government is going to be showing a face that is, you know, under the spotlight that is absolutely not their true face. And just out of the spotlight, just beyond the stands, they're engaged in some of the most egregious rights abuses of our time, you know, and, and a genocide in modern day in 2021 right now. We're talking about multiple governments reckon and, and independent bodies recognizing what's happening to the Uyghur as genocide, which is just, it's remarkable. It's horrific. And it, and it just, it has to be the red line is what we're saying in terms of where CBC or others would go to cover, you know, an Olympics. And, and I laughed when I said about China saying it's not political, not laughing at the situation. But I mean, the Olympics, that we carry flags, we sing anthems, we wear colors. Oh. There's a, the whole thing is political. You cannot, you can't separate politics from the Olympics. I mean, go back to to the the Olympics in Berlin with Hitler, and I mean, you know, mm-hmm. like it's always been political. So where do we go from here? You can't separate the politics, and I don't know that you're going to be successful or not. Maybe, maybe not. But mm-hmm. let's say it's not. Uh, and I don't want to be negative here, but let's say it's not. Would you be supportive of individual athletes, even though the Olympic rules say you can't do this, doing something on the podium or taking a political stand or doing something to express themselves then, if that's the only option? You know, if we get to that point, I think the the key for the athletes is going to be, I mean, we would always support 
the political speech, free speech by anyone, anywhere, especially athletes in this day and age. But I, I, they are really putting themselves at risk mm. to do that in a place like China. And um, I, that is actually one of our concerns that we're raising with governments is it's not, and, and National Olympic Committees, it's not just a question of what happens to Tibetans and Uyghurs and the others who are suffering under this brutal, repressive regime, but it's what happens to the athletes themselves when the Chinese government, there is no space, political space, and we have, you know, um, the two Michaels, sitting in, you know, nearly three years imprisoned in China for doing nothing. So what happens when someone does something, when someone does break essentially Chinese law to speak freely and openly or try to engage in a political protest? I mean, these are serious considerations. And I just would say it's the, these games, the, the story is not written yet. It's not over. I know that we're definitely fighting an uphill battle, but these are unprecedented times. We're talking about an unprecedented human rights um, situation and catastrophe really in China today. And I just, I have to believe that we are capable of more as an international community with like, you know, shared values and belief in freedom and human rights that while not perfect, there are ways that, that this, you know, these games do not have to move ahead as planned. And at the very least, it should be, I think the broadcasters have a responsibility to be talking to the IOC behind the scenes and pushing hard for these games to be moved, delayed, something can be done. I just can't, I cannot believe that there's nothing that can be done. Uh, people can read more about this online. There's lots there. Latin Tetong, I really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you so much. It's a fascinating topic, absolutely. And it is a troubling topic and it's a difficult topic. And to that last point about, you know, should individual athletes protest? Because you know, the Olympics in Tokyo just this last summer, they put in rules that say you cannot protest. You can't do anything political on the podium. I don't think that had anything to do with Tokyo. I think that had everything to do with setting things up so that people would know not to do that in Beijing. It'd be very interesting. I don't know that even Beijing would have the guts if someone did something political to arrest an athlete who just won a medal with the eyes of the world on them. I don't know, but are you going to be the athlete who's going to take that chance? We will see the, um, the, uh, the numbers, as she said, um, showing a divide, a real divide in this country about whether or not a boycott of some kind should be done. Uh, you will not have you, this will not be the last you will hear of this. I guarantee you that. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. I assume you are watching the election and what's happening and following along and keeping track of numbers. And there have been some interesting move. Some would might say surprising changes in the last 48 hours or so. Uh, according to some polls, including Nanos, um, liberal support has edged up again. The liberals are now back in front of this election. The conservatives had been there for a little while, it seemed at least in many of the polls. Uh, but now liberals seem to be nudging back out in front. What might be surprising to some people about this is the timing. I want to bring in Nick Nanos. He's the founder and chief data scientist at Nanos Research. Nick, how are you tonight? Hi, thanks. How are you doing? Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. Um, basically, every analyst that I could see said that Justin Trudeau had a bad English language debate. At best, he didn't cripple himself. At worst, he really hurt himself by not looking very good. And yet, now we get a day or two or three out from the debates, and it looks like his numbers are going up. What's going on? Well, I think you're assuming that the debate's important and that it changes opinion. <laughs> Fair and, enough. 
No, right? So the fact of the matter is, is that for most Canadians, they already have formed opinions of Justin Trudeau. They either love or hate the guy. So, you know, how he performs in the debate, by and large, is immaterial as long as he doesn't make a major mistake. That does not... Now, look, I'm not saying one way or the other, but that doesn't speak very highly to the need then to have debates if, if, if really it doesn't really matter what happens in them. Well, I'm, actually what I'm saying is, is that, you know, debates are not necessarily a deciding factor. They're an important factor in the campaign because it allows Canadians to size up all the different candidates. I think in this particular debate, the format was a little different. It, there wasn't opening remarks. There wasn't closing remarks where, you know, leaders could make their own direct pitch to the nation. And I think for average Canadians, they tune into the debates for the introductions and the close because that's the pitch from each of the federal party leaders. And uh, there, there isn't as much interest or appetite to listen to the bickering between federal party leaders on how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. <laughs> and, you, you know, it's interesting you talk about the bickering because I've noticed, maybe it's just unique to me, but I've noticed on my TV in the last three or four days, the negative ads have seemed to escalate. There seems to be a lot more of that less talking about what I can do for you and less about how that guy is an idiot. Um, do those, do those, we all say we hate those negative ads, but I can't believe they're doing them if they don't work. Well, the negative ads work if the target validates them. So, you know, it's just one of those things. So any campaign can make a claim about their opponent, but if their opponent acts differently, then it's, uh, the, the, the attack is not as good. And that's, that's really what, what needs to happen. So for example, when, uh, you know, in, during the campaign when Michael Ignatiev was the leader of the Liberal Party, when the Conservatives said he was just visiting, when, when Michael Ignatiev failed to answer that question, it basically validated that perhaps the Conservative attack ads were, were on board in the same way that first Defendion, when he was leader of the uh, Liberal Party, and the, uh, the Conservatives said that he was not up to the job. There were a couple things that happened in the campaign that suggested that there were issues related to, his, to the Dion campaign that validated the Conservative ads. So, you know, it, 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 cuts, it cuts, you know, like that, and it takes the target to validate the mm. attack to really move the numbers. It's not enough just to have a clever ad, because people just see, that's a clever ad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you are looking at the numbers that you're grabbing from around the country, is there any evidence that come next Monday night that not just the result is going to be different, but that across the country, because I mean, the last election we had pockets the Atlantic provinces yeah. were liberal. Quebec had BQ. We had liberal mostly in Ontario. The West was, was, was conservative. And then you had some NDP. Any reason to think that the map is going to look decidedly different next Monday night? Well, I guess it depends what decidedly different is because, you know, in our latest tracking, there's only three percentage points between the Liberals and the Conservatives, which mathematically is a tie factor in the margin of error. So the Liberals don't really have, they're not surging and there's no real significant advantage factoring the margin of error for the survey. But the one thing that we do know, at least, that if there were an election held today, the Liberals would win fewer seats. So the question is, how many seats will the Liberals lose? It, will they lose enough to put the Conservatives in, into power? There's been some interesting swings in the province of Quebec. You know, before the, uh, the English and French leaders debate last week, there are a lot of ridings circling around the island of Montreal that were too close to call that in the last week have tilted towards the Bloc Québécois. So that's been good for Blanchette and the BQ. In Ontario, what's interesting is that if you're in the GTA 
the liberals definitely have an advantage. But once you step outside of the GTA, it's basically a horse race. It's almost even, even, even between the two front-running parties, the liberals and the conservatives. So we're seeing a lot of division, geographic division. So it's kind of like the island of Montreal, predominantly liberal. Toronto downtown, predominantly liberal. But once you start moving outside of those areas, the conservatives are actually doing better than they did back in 2019. I'm sure the NDP supporters will blanch at me referring to their party as a spoiler party, so take that for what it's worth. But what effect are, I'll call them the spoiler parties, having the ones that aren't the front runners, the People's Party on the right or the NDP on the left as far as slurping votes away from the two leaders? Well, the fact that uh, the New Democrats are still doing reasonably well, they're at around 18.6% nationally, uh, makes it difficult for the Liberals to win a majority government because it splits the progressive vote. You know, likewise, for the People's Party, and, you know, we have them, I think, as of last night, at around 6.6% nationally. Um, they're a bit of a spoiler for the Conservatives, because I'm sure Aaron O'Toole and the Conservative strategists are looking at that People's Party number of 6.6 and say, wow, if I was doing fantasy politics, I wish I could take that 6.6 and put it on top of the 30, so that it would be a, bit, it would be a definite win for the Conservatives. So both of those parties are having a material impact on the ability of the frontrunners to win a majority government. And yet last time, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but last time the NDP in 2019, I'm talking about, yep. had decent numbers going into the election and that seemed to evaporate because I guess whether you want to call it pragmatic or whatever else, people who were voting that way said, you know what, if we want to beat the conservatives, the NDP is not going to win. I better vote liberal. I'm wondering if there's an expectation that happens again on both sides, right and left. Well, I think for the uh, liberals, they're hoping that that happens because that's been part of their winning franchise. But, you know, I think the bigger question is, is maybe we'll have a phenomenon where there are new Democrats that are not enthusiastic about the liberals, but hate the conservatives and they'll hold their nose and vote liberal. And then there'll be some people party uh, supporters that are disappointed with Aaron O'Toole and the, and the current conservatives, but absolutely hate Justin Trudeau and will hold their nose and, uh, and vote for the conservatives. So how about this? Everyone will be upset with the outcome of the election, and a lot of people will be holding their nose and voting for a party. Just before I let you go, because I know you got to <laughs> run, and I do appreciate the time. Over the course of this election, and it's been a short campaign because we know it was a snap election, have the issues that are of greatest concern changed at all over the time that we've seen this campaign go on, or have they been the same basically from start to finish? They've generally been the same from start to finish, and the interesting thing is there's not a lot of differentiation because the Conservatives have a platform that spends about just as much as the Liberals spend. But the New Democrats are spending much more than both the Conservatives and the Liberals, but that's what's expected. It looks like the Conservatives are trying to put out a, a platform that is not as different from the Liberals, so that they don't fight on policy. But what we did here today was that Aaron O'Toole took some direct shots at Justin Trudeau. Aaron O'Toole wants to run on character. He's not going to run on policy because there's not a lot of policy differences, at least dramatic ones, between the Liberals and the Conservatives because they both want universal, they both want child care programs, national child care programs, just paying for it differently. They both, uh, you know, want a strong health care system. Aaron O'Toole wants to focus on mental health. Justin Trudeau wants to protect the public system. On a lot of these big issues, there's not a big difference. So character might be the de one of the defining issues. And then for the Liberals, what I'll say, fear that Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives could potentially even eke out a minority government. Yeah, it's uh, it's a fascinating one being so close, and as you say, within the margin of, of error for uh, for basically being a tie. Uh, Nick Nanos, always appreciate you taking a few minutes. Thanks for doing this today. Take it easy. Bye-bye.
just so you get the numbers before we go here, um, according to the Nanos poll, and this is, you know, there are different ones, but they're all, they're all pretty close. No one is calling for a massive lead either way, but the Nanos poll has it right now 34% for the Liberals, and this is as of September 11. So, and it's a moving thing, so we'll get more numbers in the next few days. But 34% Liberal, 30.7 Conservative, 18.6 NDP, 6.6 Bloc Québécois, 5.1 People's Party, 4.1 for the Green Party. If you're in the Green Party, how, uh, how do you... How are you thinking you can be behind the people's part? I don't know. It's um, it is uh, it is it is an interesting election, and we will. Uh, if there is anybody out there who has a thousand or two or ten or twenty or whatever thousand dollars that want to put down some wagers on Monday, boy, I'm not a gambling man. I wouldn't gamble on this one. Uh, you could make a lot of money, or you could lose a lot of money on Monday. Because who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what's going to happen? The one thing I'll say, and we'll talk about this later in the week, we're going to be talking about this. Talked about it with Scott Thompson just before we came on the air today. If we get to the end of this election, if Monday night, two or three or four hours from now, the polls come in and the liberals end up with another minority government almost exactly where we started this thing, and yet we spent $600 million to achieve nothing, that will be the interesting time for this country to see what the level of frustration and anger and rage and, or everyone goes, oh, that's fine. It was a nice exercise. Glad we did that. That was fun. I don't think so. I think we're, if we're heading towards where it looks like we may be heading for, there's going to be some difficult questions. And so there should be. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson, who is the owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys and the guy who runs ComChoice Realty and the 2014 and soon to be again Dundas Citizen of the Year. Don, how are you tonight? Oh, I'm good, Scott. How are you? I well, got to ask you a question before we get into... Uh, I, I, heard, I learned something very cool the other day. Before we get into sports, do you ever watch the uh, miniseries Band of Brothers? No. You never watched it? Okay, put it on your uh, put it on your list to watch sometime. I, I would argue that it's probably the best miniseries ever made. Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks about World War II. The reason I bring this up is because it was released 20 years ago this week. In fact, it, the first episode, it's 10 parts long. The first episode came out two days before 9-11, which was kind of a really bad time to be introducing new television. But um, anyway, I, uh, the thing I learned about it, for anyone who watched it, one of the key characters in this, who was part of the Band of Brothers, the airborne unit that was in World War II, uh, was a guy named Buck Compton. And I learned this week, which I found fascinating, that that guy later in life was the prosecutor who put away Sirhan Sirhan for shooting Robert Kennedy. Anyway, all these little... Um, <laughs> Yeah, little he was he was in the in, in the army happened to be in this unit that happened to be found and written about that happened to then turn into a miniseries and he happened to be the guy that uh, that was a prosecutor. Anyway, you should watch. If you haven't watched it and you haven't and anyone else who hasn't, it is truly remarkable television and 20 years ago this week it came out and I think I've now seen it like 10 times at least. So, anyway, on we go. I I did I did watch your last uh recommendation about the Danbury Threat Trashers, so. Yes, and how was that? And and the old Colonial Hockey League, which I was a part of, as you recall. Yes. Um, interesting. It was an interesting read, and I wasn't totally astonished that that goes on down there in some minor pro sports. But it was a fascinating watch because, you know, you can relate to so much of it. 
And uh, it was pretty interesting on minor pro hockey. It's, it's, it's thanks for the recommendation. And I tell anybody, if you're a bit of a hockey fan to watch it, you'll find it intriguing. So it's on Netflix. It's called um, Untold Crimes and Penalties. And it's a documentary, an hour and a half, about this team called the Danbury Trashers. And I got a piece in the paper actually tomorrow because a Hamilton guy who was an assistant coach with the Bulldogs once upon a time played on that team when, when that was going on. And we talked to him about it. But most people probably don't know this, Don. So it's now called, that league is now called the United Hockey League. But you said, the you mentioned the Colonial Hockey League. What's, what year was it? You started the league that became the Colonial Hockey League. That was your baby, or that became United Hockey League. What year did you start the Colonial Hockey League? 91-92 with five teams. St. Thomas, Ontario, Thunder Bay, Ontario, Brantford Smoke, Flint Bulldogs, and the uh, Michigan uh, Falcons. Now, re- refresh my memory, and, and because as, as I recall, yeah, it's a lot bigger now. As I recall, this league did not get off the ground. You didn't get the final go-ahead that this thing was going to start until not long before the first season, right? I think uh, I would say the last team was in place in August, and we started in the first uh, of October. So, so yeah, being partially insane was an asset. Um, starting it during an economic slowdown in Brantford uh, did not take much genius. It was kind of a risky move. But the team was there for 10 years. Um, and Thunder Bay were affiliated with the Senators, and we were affiliated with the Leafs. But it was a real quick turnaround. It was like from June on when the concept come up. And, you know, you get ice contracts and pulled a lot off. Played played some bad Wednesday nights in Brantford to start with, but we got through it and uh, won a championship second year to a full house and then went to Utica and Saginaw and all the normal places, Muskegon, you know, everybody that had an old IHL team. And it's just How do you that, find that players, old... though, Don? If you don't have a league that's starting until necessarily August, anybody, I would think, who can play hockey – has, who may want to play hockey has signed a contract. So where do you find guys to fill out the rosters for this league? Well, the first thing we did, and we were, it was very fortunate, Floyd Smith and uh, through uh, a couple guys I know, we ended up affiliating with uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs, which meant the St. John's Maple Leafs, uh, if they had excess players under contract, they would send them down. Uh, we got uh, two or three, four maybe the first year, and some other guys that were at their camp. You know, and I wasn't that far removed from uh, the Allen Cup. And I had all kinds of hockey contacts. So we didn't have any trouble at all finding hockey players. You know, we had a little trouble in some positions. Our goaltending didn't start out the way we exactly needed it. Uh, and there were some soft areas. But it didn't take long to realize being tough, sold. And uh, so we had some tough guys. Back the way... Uh, Hockey, I thought, was a bit more entertaining. It certainly wasn't as skilled as it is now, but I'll tell you, in that league, you never knew what was going to happen and when it was going to happen and who was going to be in the stands and who was going to... It was... It uh, wasn't a slap shot, but it was a second cousin. Um, so it, so there was lots of places, lots of guys could get players. Gary Cook, who's gone now, great friend in Thunder Bay. Uh, they had a great team and... Um, Peter Horachuk, uh, who coached the Leafs, was in St. Thomas. 
Flint had money, so they brought guys in. And uh, the U.S. teams had a lot of U.S. NCAA guys, so we kind of bullied them around quite a bit. But, um, no, it was it was wasn't hard to get players. It was hard to get the right kind of players. We got a lot of guys that um, maybe had American League contracts that lost them <clears throat> and were looking to re- restart their career. And being in Brantford, especially, there was all kinds of guys coming home from playing in the American League. Said, you know, I'll play another year because I can be home with my family. So we had guys from Mississauga, Burlington, and so on. So I didn't have any trouble getting players. Did you, though, have, because this is now all of a sudden, I'm guessing for a lot of guys who don't have a contract that year, do you start getting reached out to by anybody who's interested, including some of the, like, the complete wing nuts? Uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we, uh, we, had a, we had an open-door uh, policy for wing nuts. Um, <laughs> I don't think I'd have told, said that then, but I can say it now. It's 20 years ago, right? 30 years ago. And, uh, yeah, we had a bit of a policy. You, you, uh, you, uh, in your earlier sports days, remember some of the, some of the fine young lads I had on the team and some of them are coaching, uh, two or three of them are coaching in the OHL now. So, I mean, you know, just because you're a bit on the edge as a hockey player, doesn't mean you don't turn out to be a fine young man. And, um, we did that. And, uh, that's kind of the proud part of that part of the game. And we had some guys that, that had maybe blown their chance and wanted a second chance. And they came to us and ended up going back to the American league and getting contracts. So we were a development league for those that wanted to be developed. And some of them just came back and ran out the string. Uh, you know, we had a young guy from uh, Brantford, Paul Palillo that, you know, led the league in scoring and, and was very, was Gretzky light, but at that level uh, did some very amazing things. So, it was quite a mixture of very skilled guys, uh, very tough guys, and everybody left everybody alone. Everybody knew who the dance partner was supposed to be. So, yeah, no, it was. I, I think you'll find that it was as entertaining a hockey as uh, there's uh, been in Brantford. I, do I don't you, uh, know. Do you care to share any of the stories from what happened on the road? <laughs> Well, I, I don't know. Does thirty? Does there, if I disclose it now, does that keep everybody out of jail thirty years later? You might be the oh, statute were, of limitations. There were there were some things that I had to play a father role figure in, and I was not old enough to have kids that age because I'd have been around my mid thirties then. So, yeah, there were some shenanigans that that perhaps wouldn't have uh, uh, been been looked on favorably had they have come out but uh you know you watch that documentary i mean minor hockey uh minor pro hockey is full of those stories and when slap shot come out you know i uh, i was refereeing back in the 70s and uh there was all kinds of guys john gofton uh, larry maverdy that played in slap shot and you know our coach kenny mann played in that area era and you know, a lot of the stuff the one on the Slapshot movie wasn't too far off the mark. I mean, it was it was it was pretty crazy back then. Well, that Rod movie was written by the NHL. sister of a player, right? Who who was taking the real stories from her brother? Well, and so. I've had guys say that you know it's too bad they couldn't have put some more of the truth in, but I guess you couldn't have that in a movie. So, yeah, no, there's I you know some of the 
stories are best left untold, Scott, I think. Um, I, I try and maintain somewhat of a reputation, so telling them wouldn't enhance that. <laughs> there I is did, a book in I there somewhere, though, though. There is a I, book. I sold, uh, I, I sold some players and traded some players after some road trips and uh, just said, you know, this, this has to be done. I had a visit from a couple Toronto or Brantford police officers that recommended I trade, make a trade, which I did that night. And uh, so those stories are best kept untold, but there's a lot goes on. And when they came for a visit, I said, I'm your guy. I'll do it. And which I did. So we, 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 we traded some guys around and, you know, the, uh, the, the guy, the one guy I got back, he said, this guy's a handful. I said, yeah, well, good luck with what you're getting. Last week when, um, when the Argos played the Ticats and the Ticats lost because they hit a goal post with an extra point, which would have tied the game up and Ticat fans not happy and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I want to ask you about this because the Toronto Argonauts, their social media team, uh, immediately leapt into action and first of all posted a photo which i thought was very funny of the goalpost with just the words love you <laughs> and a blue heart but then got kind of cheeky because then they posted a sign coming into hamilton that says hey hamilton you just lost to the certified loser boys which was a shot because hamilton had taken a poke at them before and then put a made video of the hamilton sign from outside city hall where all the lit up letters burnout except for the L for loss and on and on and on. And I'm wondering, you know, if you're talking about a professional sports league, do you applaud this kind of stuff and this kind of creativity and say, you know, it's all in good fun. It's, you know, it's just back and forth. It's helping to build the the rivalry and everything else. Or do you say it's a professional sports league? Be a little bit serious about this. I think it's a local rivalry, um, as we know, and I think more liberties can be taken uh, by the Toronto Argonauts uh, against a team whose common chant when you walk into Tim Horton Field is, Argos suck. So if that's kind of the cheer that the Ticat fans have, I, it, in my mind, it kicks the door open to have some fun for the Argos. And the Argos have been so bad the last three or four years. I I think they get a little bit of uh, liberty to have some fun with Hamilton or anybody else they can beat. I I, I enjoy it. I see. I I'm if with you're you. Creative and you're not offensive, then have at it. And I hope the Ticat creative guys can fight back. I, I'm with you. And I, not only that, I mean, I'm with you whether it's the Argos or whether it's the Leafs or the Raptors or whomever. I, I you know, again, don't be offensive, but, uh, you know, too, it seems to me that too many teams in sports these days really believe that what they are doing is just a half step behind curing cancer. And ultimately, this is about entertainment and about having fun and about, you know, doing that kind of making it an enjoyable experience. And I, I'm all for this. I mean, and anyone from Ticat land that would get upset by this, and I've seen there's a few people that are like, come on, you shouldn't be doing it. I think it's fantastic. I do. And if the Ticats want to fire back, I'm all for the Ticats firing back at this one. But the idea that uh, somehow sports should be serious, uh, to me, misses the mark. Well, the, these, these teams aren't doing God's work. You're right. It's entertainment, and it's a game. 
It's a sporting event. You know, uh, the Jays didn't let up on Baltimore the other day. I mean, they knocked them down, put their foot on their throat, and stepped as hard as they could. You know, you score 22 runs, it's hard to let up. Now that the Argos didn't blow those high cats up, but I agree. Like, have some fun with it. Again, this is a season ticket base that almost every season ticket holder as a passage to get a ticket has to say Argos suck. That's not complimentary in any world I live in, but it's funny. And, you know, if it's funny, have some fun with it. If they cross the line, then they'll, they'll get slapped, but I don't think anything they did cross the line. I mean, what the heck? Have some fun with it. Boy, you know, it's, we've been in a pandemic for 19 months. Somebody enjoy themselves. Even if it crosses the line a little bit, and I'm not talking about something like totally offensive, but even if, even if you do something on social media and somebody gets bent out of shape or somewhere along the line, someone says, you know, that went a little bit too far. Look, we all know where too far really is. I, I don't think any of us are dumb enough to not know where too far to the point where it's going to end a career or ruin someone's reputation is. But this kind of thing, I mean, you're, you're, you're poking fun at another team. <clears throat> I, I would love it, quite frankly, if the Argos pushed it to the point where Ticat fans really did get upset. And then I would love it if Ticat fans and their social media pushed back where Argos fans got upset because you know what? That's there were nine thousand people Don at the Argos game against the Ticats. Nine thousand people. You gotta find some way to make people interested, even if it's getting people upset. Do something that makes people want to watch the game because, uh, you know, 9,000 people is shameful. And I know there's COVID and there's rules and regulations and all the rest. 9,000 people for a football game. Uh, if I'm the Argos, I am I am taking what I've done here, which is very cheeky and I think very funny. And I'm saying, okay, how can we push this even more to make sure that people notice us? <laughs> I'm going to go back to the Colonial League for one minute. We were going into Muskegon and they come in and we had a pretty rough game. And I let the general manager know that he wasn't going to enjoy the next time we came to Muskegon. So I just casually mentioned that. I may have been a little more flowery in the language. We got off the bus and he said, Don, come into my office. So I went in my office. I said, what's up? He said, well, I kind of put a story in the paper yesterday that you suggested that somebody was going to need body bags the next time you came to Muskegon, so you might not want to go up in the crowd tonight. <laughs> okay, well, I said, how am I going to get around? I'm not staying in the dressing room. So he had two cops take me up to the press box. And the people were so mad. Like, I don't think they'd have known me from my bed. I said, they won't even know me. He said, well, we put a picture of you in the paper. <laughs> so that might, that might have been going too far. Like, you know, hate one of my players, but don't do that to me. So anyway, the building was sold out and I was happy for him. And they gave us five cases of beer when we left the rink for being good sports about it. So, and we won. So, but that's probably going too far. Remember I said, there's a thousand stories in those minor pro leagues. This is a CFL. So you're right. Do it, have some fun with it. And, and let's hope that the next time, if it works a little bit, Maybe there's an extra two or 3,000 people from Hamilton go down to Toronto and watch the game. Let them get 25,000 people in uh, uh, BMO Field. I mean, I'd, like to know see, so I'd like to see big crowds in Toronto. The league does not circulate around Toronto like Toronto thinks it does. And it's good MLSE have deep pockets. But 
there's nothing better than the Ticats going into Toronto and having a sold-out stadium. I think it'd be wonderful. And it's ironic that MLSE is who's behind this because I'll tell you, there is no social media enterprise less lighthearted, less fun, less cheeky, less anything else than the Leafs and Raptors. I mean, it's so staid and stoic and sober and serious all the time. And you look around the NHL, you look what the Carolina Hurricanes did when they made their offer sheet to Kotkaniemi and the fun they were poking at Montreal. Now, Montreal, I'm sure, did not think of it as very fun, but I'll tell you what, everyone else who was not a Canadiens fan thought it was hilarious the way they were shooting back because Montreal had tried to do the same thing to them a year before, and they fire back with even to the same words, exactly the same words to Montreal, and it's fun. And the one thing that the Leafs and Raptors, I think, are missing now is they are such a big corporation. There's so much money. There's It's so serious that sometimes I think they miss the fun part. Yeah, there's 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 quite a few Birkenstocks and Tilly hats down there that need to uh, turn into baseball caps, I think. And, you know, that Carolina thing, the offer sheet uh, that they made, the last two digits on the, um, the offer sheet for the amount was the number that Montreal went after the Carolina player. So they didn't even try and hide what they were doing. No, I mean they even put they even put the number in the contract. So you're right, and that's the National Hockey League. And I don't think Batman likely said anything other than I hope you think that kid's worth that. <laughs> they didn't sign him to a very long contract. But it was the kind of thing. Now I know you don't have to draw attention to the Leafs in Toronto. I understand that. I mean, I, I like you can. They could have. They've got eighteen thousand seats at what's it called? The Scotiabank arena, Scotiabank place, whatever it's called. You could probably have 30,000 seats in there and still sell out every game. If you wanted to, they they don't need to draw attention, but boy, it just seems like fun is missing. Sometimes fun. There's just, we forget there's so much media. There's so much attention on this team. There's so much everything else that fun sometimes is missing. And, and, you know, I, I applaud the Argos. I applaud them for being fun. And I know they have to be. I know it's a different scenario, but boy, it's, it's to me, Don, the one thing that I don't like about sports, and, you know, like I, I, I love almost everything about sports. The one thing I don't love is when it becomes so business heavy, so serious, so everything must be exactly right. Uh, that to me, it, it's supposed to be an outlet. It's supposed to be entertainment. It's supposed to be a diversion. And we forget that. We, we forget that let way me, too often. Let me put it into perspective, the, different, uh, the difference in uh, uh, the crowds for the Argos. For one Leaf game, to buy one ticket to a Leaf game in the Platinum would buy you at least one season ticket for the Argos. At least. So there's the difference. There's the difference in the snack bracket. There, the Argos are the fun crowd. So let them have some fun with it. I'm I'm looking it up as we're typing now, but um, I would bet you that one season that a pair of season tickets for the Argos would get you a single top-notch seat. And and it may not even have to be a platinum seat. I mean, but there's there there's the difference, and and I would say there's you as they're often called that platinum when they come out of the uh, their private boxes underneath the sushi crowd and the suit crowd, 
compared to the Argo fans that they're okay if they go in shorts and a t-shirt if it's warm enough. You know, they just they just go to have fun, have a few beers. They want to tailgate, which we can now do. I mean, I think they're just a fun crowd. You just don't see that at the Leafs. And you can take kids, and kids will enjoy it. So they, they generate entertainment, and if that's going to help the product be more entertaining and build a better rivalry, so be it. And if any team, and I'm not talking about the Ticats, I don't think the Ticats would do this. If any team were to push back and say, whether it's in football or CFL or anywhere else, were to push back and say, you can't do that to our team. You know what? I would say relax, like loosen the, loosen your collar a little bit. It's supposed to be fun. We forget that because of the money, not in the CFL, but in so many sports, we forget that it's supposed to be fun, not just massive business. Wasn't it four or five years ago, Bob Young kind of poo-pooed the Argos suck thing and, and, uh, you know, kind of thought maybe it, it might be inappropriate at times, but you can see how well that worked. That was a long time ago. Now. Like, that was like 15 years ago. But yeah, you're right. Was it? The yeah, Ticat, but, but you're right. Ticat fam, the Ticat fam just ramped it up. <laughs> Don't tell us we can't. You can't tell people, Ticat fans, they can't do something. Or are they going to do it worse? Yeah, it's a long time now. As I say, 10, 12, 15 years at least. But um, yeah, you're right. That did not go so well. We've, uh, the, or Argo Suck remains a, a very familiar part of the lexicon if you've been down there anytime recently. And I don't anticipate it's going away anytime soon. Don, I don't know if you watched any of the Blue Jays on the weekend. Now, I know they were playing the Baltimore Orioles, who um, you and me and Ben could put together a slow pitch team and compete with the Orioles. I think, I mean, they are just, again, just horrendous. <laughs> Nonetheless, they just, the, the Blue Jays offense just was crazy. The, the amount of runs they put up, it was just 11 runs in one inning and 10 in another inning. And, but the thing I'm looking at here, they're, they've clawed their way back now into wild card contention. But I always wonder this in any sport, What's the level of confidence you have that a team that relies so heavily on offense to win will be successful if and when they make it to the playoffs? They probably can't be. That's my fear. I, yeah. It's entertaining. It's fun to watch. Few teams have been able to do it. Gretzky's Oilers could do it because they could win 7-6 at any time. Uh, Grant Fuhrer was considered a great goaltender. His goals against average was double or triple what most guys are today. So they could do it, but it's not its not the exact way you want to build a franchise to be able to win a World Series or have success in the playoffs is only rely on your um, bat. But you know what? They're doing it right now, but the problem is when you get in the playoffs, you're going to play against another pretty good team. They're not going to play against Baltimore if they happen to make the playoffs. And that last series against the Yankees is going to tell quite a tale on their playoff hopes. They better be up at least two when they play that series because the Yankees aren't that bad a team. But they've won 10 of 11. They're a lot of fun to watch like the Jays used to be. So, you know, what the heck, just enjoy the run. They've, Like I said, they've won 10 of 11, I think. Maybe yeah. 10, 11 yep. or 12. I mean, they're on, they're on a real run. They were like four and a half games out. 10 days ago, and now they're tied for the last, uh, uh, no, they're, uh, <clears throat> them and the Yankees would be in in the wild card right now. So they, they've fought their way back, enjoy it, but it's a hard way to win in the playoffs, Scott, because you got to have no, 
there's no downside to it. I mean, right now it is fun to watch them. It, it is always fun. I know there are people who are real pitching aficionados. They love a good pitching pitcher's duel and they, they could be thrilled watching a zero, zero tie into the 12th inning with two hits on each side. I, I know those people are out there. I get it. But I think vastly more people, Don, would rather watch an 11-10 game more often than sure. not where balls are flying all over the place. So it's fun. It's a, it's a lot of fun. But again, I think if they make it into the playoffs, I just look at this and I go, I, the Toronto Maple Leafs last spring were supposed to have finally reached the point where their offense was so dominant that they could just take over games and, you know, they could win. And how did that go? Now, I know that's hockey, but it, it's similar. It's the same. But defense tends to be the dominating factor in playoff games. Every sport. Everybody has to learn how to win a hockey game two to one if you're going to be successful in the playoffs. If you get if you get in a shootout and you got an offensive team, you're going to win. But you have to be capable of winning those two one games. And until you learn how to do that, you're never going to win a Stanley Cup ever. So, I mean, if the Jays get in, <clears throat> would you be a guy? Now I know I don't know if you're a gambling guy or not, but would you put money on the Jays winning in a playoff series? I mean, they, first of all, they'd have to win a wild card game, and you hope that because the thing about their pitching is they they have pit, Robbie Ray has been amazing this year, except for the last game. Ryu was amazing until his last few games. I, I don't know that there's a single guy on this pitching staff that you say I'm feeling guaranteed this guy is going to perform when it matters. But beyond that, would you put money on the Blue Jays in the playoffs? Uh, If they stay on this role, I would, because confidence plays such a big part when you've got such a young team, right? Those guys now think they can beat anybody. And if they can carry on and the worst slump they get in is a two-game losing streak and they can keep that swagger going, young guys with a lot of talent, boy, that – that confidence plays such a big part in it. So if they can get in and win that uh, wild card series, I, I, I wouldn't bet against them. Like I don't bet on sports, but if you wanted to put five bucks on it, I'd take the Jays. It would be interesting. It, it really would. I mean, I, I go back to 2015 and 2016, and I mean, if we remember back in 2015, they could not be stopped. The offense was so good that you just, you know, you would go through Batista and Encarnacion and Tulowitzki and on and on and on, and you couldn't stop them until they were stopped, which is always the way, right? Until you run into the pitching that all of a sudden gives you some fits. Um, You know, same with the Jays, same with NBA teams, same with NFL teams. I mean, the Buffalo Bills, back in the glory days of the Buffalo Bills in the early 90s, four years in a row going to the Super Bowl, their offense with the K-Gun offense and Jim Kelly and everything just mowed through everybody. And then you get to the Super Bowl and run into a really good defensive team, and that's the end of that. And I kind of look at the Jays like that still right now, and and maybe I shouldn't be so down on their opportunity to win in a close game, but I I just don't see it. Yeah, and and, and the the Bills, football's so structured, you can't really bring anything new to them. What you can't do in baseball is stop Blatty from hitting four home runs in a game. You can't figure out how to slow Jim Kelly down by watching film. You can't watch enough film to, if Vladdy gets on a roll and a pitcher makes a mistake, he can put it out. And the Jays have got a bunch of guys like that. So I, I think base, offense and baseball, again, if these guys keep their swagger, they're going to they're gonna be a handful. 
sure always appreciate you coming on, Don. Thanks for doing this tonight. I want, Sorry, Scott, go ahead. I want to give one quick quick shout yeah. out to our new maple syrup queen. I did, thought it'd be a long time before I would watch the Ladies U.S. Open in entirety, and Ms. Fernandez did very well and represented Canada Absolutely. well. Congratulations to her. Absolutely. She was Fantastic. great. Don Robertson, thank you for doing this. Okay. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.